Kids, we hope you have a great time in the back. Thank you, Sean, for leading us in worship. Sean spent the week uh, helping lead worship at a middle school camp for hundreds of middle schoolers this past week. I think he managed to get some sleep throughout the week, uh, but I'm sure he's full of stories about what God did there. This morning, I'd encourage you to turn to to the book of Haggai. This is a table of contents book of the Bible where you don't necessarily find it readily. You've got to check out the table of contents and you go there um, and let alone we're going to read from uh, chapter 1 verses 1 uh, to 15. We've been looking at uh, this big construction project in the Old Testament this summer, the, the rebuilding of God's temple, uh, the rebuilding of God's house in Jerusalem. Um, And I've many times throughout uh, thought about the different house projects my wife and I have had uh, over the years. Some of those projects we have brought to completion, uh, but many of those projects, if I'm honest with you, uh, remain unfinished. They're littered all throughout the house, and we have all excuses why uh, they're not finished, whether we can't afford it or we don't have time to finish it. Um, and many other excuses, but whatever it is, they remain undone throughout the house. And then eventually, I don't know if this happens to you, eventually you just get used to having half-done projects around the house, and then you just don't even notice them anymore. They sort of fade into the background. Hopefully we're not alone on that. Hopefully that's uh, been the case for you as well at some point. Well, at this, this summer we've been looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, this is a story of God's people when they were given the freedom to return home and to rebuild after their Babylonian exile. Uh, This return came in three waves, um, one under Zerubbabel, uh, one under a leader named Ezra, and the final one under Nehemiah. We've been looking at this first wave where 48,000 people returned. Uh, They started rebuilding under the leadership of Zerubbabel, who became their governor. They rebuilt the temple. They reinstituted uh, the rituals and the rhythms of worship. Uh, But if you were with us last week, we saw the job wasn't necessarily a very easy job. Uh, They faced all sorts of uh, obstacles and opposition. Uh, The people of the land, the people who were living there, opposed this construction project almost every single step of the way. Then, of course, there was a change in uh, Persian leadership. You know, it started under Cyrus. Then there was King Artaxerxes, and then there was King Darius involved. And so there's all this opposition, all of uh, these obstacles. And because of that, the work stalled. In fact, the work uh, stopped, and there was all sorts of valid excuses as to why the work stopped, and that stoppage persisted for, for many years. In fact, maybe the people got used to the unfinished building projects that were all around them. And it wasn't until this prophet, the prophet Haggai, came along that the work began again. He was uh, the prophet, God's spokesman, and his message to them was very simple. Let's get to it. Let's restart the work. Let's do what God has called us to do. And so I'm going to be reading from Haggai, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Uh, You can follow along in your copy of God's Word or on the screens or uh, in the bulletins as well. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, the pro- came, came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for your, you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is God's word. Father, thanks for the gift of worship this morning, Lord. I've I've just uh, traced a theme throughout many of the songs and the readings that we have, that, that you are a God who welcomes not only our joys and our happiness and our celebration, but also our sorrows and our sadness. And that's what we bring before you whenever we come to worship. Mixed emotions, Lord, um, celebratory feelings and uh, feelings of sorrow and sadness, and yet you welcome all of them. You long for all of us, Lord, and all of our emotions and all of our complexity. And so, Father, we humbly bring all these things to you as we come before your word and pray that you would speak through it to shape our hearts and to make us more in your image. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you uh, know me at all, you know that I, uh, I like to read. Uh, I've always liked to talk about books, and, and I like to read. And the summer months tend to be the months in which I catch up uh, on a lot of my reading. And what that means is inevitably throughout the year, I like to, to buy books, and often I'll start it. I'll read the first chapter or two. Uh, but then life will set in and I'll run out of time and, and the book will remain unfinished. And so what happens throughout often the school year is I get books stacked up beside my bed. And then the summer months, the times where I sort of get to it and finish each one of these books. Really what I should do 
is I should stop buying books until I have finished the ones that I have. Uh, Maybe you uh, fall into that trap as well. You know, the truth is we've got a lot of unfinished things in our lives. Uh, Maybe it's books that we haven't finished. Maybe it's household projects that um, remain undone. Maybe it's work projects. Maybe it's a, a relationship Uh, that needs to be mended or needs to be nurtured, but we just don't really feel like uh, putting the energy towards it. And so sometimes life presents us with those situations. Sometimes you just need to sit down and to get going, to get that thing, that unfinished thing in our life, to bring it to completion. Well, God's people had started this large building project, but the project had stalled. And uh, most people believe that it had stalled for somewhere around 15 years. That's a long time to have an unfinished project sitting around the house. And that's why uh, the prophet Haggai had to step in and he had to say that it was time to get going, that God wanted them to get going. Now, all throughout, we've seen that Ezra and Nehemiah are all about this building project, but we've seen that it's more than just that. We've seen that God was rebuilding their hearts as he was rebuilding their temple, as he was rebuilding their city, as he was rebuilding their faith. And so this stalled building project uh, isn't so much just about wood and timber and structure. It's just as much of a heart issue as it was a building issue. And if we were to look at this in modern terms, we would say that it is a matter of priorities. It's a matter of priorities. We all know what priorities are. Uh, They are the things that we organize our lives. We organize the pieces of our lives according to their relative importance, and we put certain priorities on things and not necessarily on others. Gandhi, believe it or not, uh, was known to have said that action expresses priorities. Action expresses priorities. And what he meant by was this, that what we do is what best reflects our priorities, a a, a reflection of who we are. And I want you to think about it this way. Imagine if I were to ask you to sit down with a sheet of paper and a pen and write down all the priorities of your life. Write down all those priorities. Chances are we'd Write things like faith is really important. That's a priority. Family is a priority. Our our vocation is a priority. And then I asked you to take all those pieces and rank them according to their relative importance. And uh, this is an important exercise. We've never done this before. This is an important exercise. It's important because our lives are short, right? Our lives are short. The Bible compares our lives to a vapor that is here today and gone tomorrow. So in light of the brevity of our lives, the large scope of eternity, what our priorities are really matters. And we often have to ask ourselves, what really matters in the scope of eternity? So if I asked you to write down that list, you'd probably come up with a a very impressive list that looks really good. But the question is, do our lives match that wonderful list we would write? That's why Gandhi said that action expresses priorities. Our actions, how we spend our time, how we spend our energy and our resources are what truly reflects our priorities in life. 
So if we were to take that exercise a step further, maybe we could do the hard work and create a second list that honestly highlights our actions, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, what we do with our lives, and see how it compares with that first list that we created. Because what we do with our time and money and energy reflects what our real priorities are. And if we put those two lists next to one another, it might be a real sobering exercise to think about what we say we care about versus what we actually care about according to our actions. Well, in the ancient world, they didn't use this word priority. Instead, priorities were called loves. They were called loves. We're, we're all creatures that can't help but love and, and love people and love things. And we love so many different things from spouses to children <clears throat> to sunsets to, to pets to ice cream. Uh, but what's important is how we order our loves and make sure our loves are ordered correctly. In fact, uh, St. Augustine, who you hear us talk about a lot, said that uh, he was famous for saying that we ought to think of sin as a disordering of our loves. Think about that while I take a sip. We ought to think about sin as a disordering of our loves. So think about it this way. We all love friendship, right? We all love having friends, and <clears throat> it's important for us to have friends and people we can share our lives with, people we can be authentic with, and they can be authentic with us. And so that's an honest love that we have in life. But we also uh, have a love for being recognized, for, for being esteemed, for being well-liked and well-respected. Even, uh, dare I say, we, like, we love feeling popular and wanted, right? Those are both two really good things, good and healthy loves. But what if our love for popularity outranks our love for friendship? And what ends up happening is we hurt our friends in order to be recognized and esteemed. What have we done? Well, we have sinned. We have disordered our loves in the process. If I love both ice cream and family, an absurd, an absurd example, if I love both ice cream and my family, but my love for ice cream outweighs my love for my family, what have I done? I've, I've disordered my loves and I have sinned. And so you might be wondering, what does all this have to do with our passage? Well, look at verse 3. <clears throat> it says this, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. You see, after 15 years... God's people were at a place where they cared more about building houses and building their own wealth than they did about building God's temple and really about God himself. See, their priorities had become misaligned. Their priorities were not God's priorities. Their loves had become disordered. Now, I want to be careful. There's nothing wrong with wanting a nice house. There's nothing wrong with wanting wealth and, and comfort and security. But when those things become more important than the work of the Lord, our loves have become disordered. We love those things more than we love God, and our selfishness outweighs 
our commitment to the mission of God that we are all given. This, I think, our passage alludes to is the lore and the seduction of wealth because it is a love that really never satisfies. Think about it. We live in probably the wealthiest nation in the world at the wealthiest moment in all of human history, and yet we're likely the least fulfilled and joyful of all people in history as well. Eugene Peterson paraphrased our passage this way, and I thought it was beautiful. He writes this, take a good hard look at your life. Think it over. You spend a lot of money, but you haven't much to show for it. You keep filling your plates, but you never get filled up. You keep drinking and drinking and drinking, but you're always thirsty. You put on layer after layer of clothes, but you can't get warm. These are leaky, rusted out buckets. That's the way he paraphrases our passage this morning. Now, we have to be careful because there's really nothing wrong with good food and nice homes and cool clothes as long as we recognize them for what they are. They are empty loves. To love them above God is actually to sin. To love them above God is an exercise in futility and emptiness. Why? Because they cannot give us what our hearts most long for. And so one of the most gracious things that God can do, and let's be honest, sometimes the most painful things that God can do, one of the most gracious and painful things that he can do is to actually reorder our loves for us. Tim Keller said that the real way to know how much you love somebody is to, know how, is to, to, to examine how much you are willing to give. To, to, the real way to know how much you love someone is to know how much you are willing to give. See, God's people had been so caught up in their other loves that they were no longer willing to give to God. They might have been willing to maybe give something to him or a little peace as long as it really didn't get in the way of their priorities. And so God, through the prophet Haggai, steps in. Haggai offers four prophecies in a span of four months. God couples it with a drought in order to get their attention. Why? Because he needed to sour that idol of wealth that they had given themselves to. Then our passage tells us this, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. What's that tell us? It tells us after 15 years of inactivity, God got their attention and they got to work again. On this project. Why? Because God had reordered their loves. He'd, he'd sent a, a divine disruption to, to shake them out of their spiritual lethargy. He, he woke them up from their spiritual indifference. And the truth is, sometimes God needs to do the very same thing for you and I. You see, I don't think any of us sitting here would argue. Uh, as to whether or not God should be an important part of our lives. We would all say God has to be an important part of our lives. 
But whether knowingly or unknowingly, we often want God to be content with somewhere around fourth position, right? We want God to be content with that. You're important, God, but you're not as important as as my career or my success or my wealth or even my 401k. Uh, You're important, God, but, but my reputation and my esteem are paramount. You're important, God, but what I want is what I want for my life. You're important, God, as long as you don't ask me too much or it doesn't become too costly for me to follow you. Your, your missional priority for my life is important as long as it doesn't interrupt my calendar. And so we say to God, hey, you should be happy with fourth position, right? Because there are so many lower positions that you could be relocated to. It could be worse. But the truth is God is never content with fourth position. The bedrock commandment of the scriptures is to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. The first commandment is to have no other gods before him. We could translate that in our terms this morning. We should have no other loves before him him. Now, is God just being greedy? Is he just being sort of needy? That's not what's happening here at all. He just simply knows that this is the only love that truly satisfies, and it is the only love that will truly carry us into eternity. In a later prophecy in Haggai, as the people are rebuilding, God addresses a potential cynicism that might be able to be setting in in their hearts. He acknowledges that that older generation remembers the glory of the old temple and the physical presence of God that was visibly manifested in that old temple. And this new project, this, this, this new temple, seems so paltry in comparison. And so God reminds them in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. As we're going to see throughout the end of the summer, even after that temple was completed, it was nothing at all like that old temple that was built by Solomon. And the truth is, that's because God had something even better in store. You see, about 400 years later, Uh, The gospel writer John wrote these words in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is John saying here? Well, you could translate that section, word became flesh, and you could translate it as God tabernacled or templed among us. In the person of Jesus Christ. Why did he come? Why did he die? He did it because he loved us. Remember that Keller quote? The real way to know how much you love somebody is to to examine how willing they are to give for you. How do you know that Jesus loves you? He was willing to give everything. And his love is the only love that truly satisfies. And so, friends, what do we take away from this? Well, prioritize your life 
around his priorities. Maybe take the time to do that hard work of of writing down what should be your priorities and what your life actually reflects your priorities are all about to ensure that as his people, as his children, your priorities are his priorities, that your loves are what he loves. Why? Because this is the love that will carry you in to eternity. Let's pray.